This is Derek Duncan. Welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is part one of a two-part discussion with architect Kyle Franz. Golf architecture is a hard business, and in many ways it's gotten even harder in the last decade. For newcomers trying to break into the field, work can be unreliable and intermittent, necessitating extreme schedule flexibility and an almost vagabond lifestyle working jobs for other architects with no guarantee of lasting, secure employment. These challenging conditions and the relatively stagnant nature of opportunities for young designers make it all the more impressive when someone like Kyle Franz is able to break through and establish himself as a known, respected, and, most significantly, independent designer. Franz cut his teeth shaping features for architects like Tom Doak and Gil Hans at places like Pacific Dunes, Barnbugle Dunes in Tasmania, and the Olympic Golf Club in Rio de Janeiro. His work on Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw's crew during the throwback restoration of Pinehurst No. 2 in 2010 brought him to the Sandhills of North Carolina, a place he's yet to leave. Franz relocated his operations to the Pinehurst area, where he was able to immerse himself in his own much-heralded restoration of Donald Ross's famed Mid-Pines course, followed by another lovely restoration of its sister course, Pine Needles, which will host the U.S. Women's Open in 2022. He's also finishing a restoration of the Country Club of Charleston, an old Seth Rayner design that will host the Women's Open next year. When Kyle was just a wee lad, he developed a single-track devotion to golf and golf design, and he's chased it through to the point where his own story is becoming a strand in the greater story of golf design in the 21st century. In part one, we talk about his time in the Pinehurst area, Donald Ross, and what he's been working on recently. In part two, we pull back for more of a big-picture discussion of contemporary courses and design, what it all means, and where it's going in the future. So here it is. Enjoy. Kyle Franz. Okay, stay tuned for part two of my discussion with Kyle Franz. There's much more to come. So you and I have one thing in common. We're both Western kids who are making it in the South. So (laughs) you're in Pinehurst now, and you had you ever been to Pinehurst when uh, before you started working on the number two course with Bill and Ben? Uh, I had I had come and played golf here. Yes, um, a couple of different times, Uh, but. but it had not worked here. I came and visited the Dormer Club project uh, when we were, um, where was I? I guess I was in Virginia Beach or something like that, working on a project for Tim Liddy very briefly, and uh, came down and visited the guys and played number two for the first time and went from there. So, Coming into Pinehurst, it's, it's such a special place. It's, golf there is a way of life. There's just an, a complete and total embracement of golf in the Pinehurst area. You sense at the minute that you get into that region that golf is so important is just is just woven into everything that Pinehurst stands for and, and, and is and you know of course it was the basis of its entire existence but it, it continues on have you ever sensed that total embrace that total way of life surrounding golf anywhere else in the United States other than Pinehurst never anywhere in the United States give Bannon about 40 years and it might be there but uh, um, the closest thing that I can that I could equate to it as St. Andrews, obviously, in the U.K., but nothing like it here in the United States. Yeah, and the thing about, you know, I think Bannon is, maybe, but the town is so small, you know, it's just, and that's kind of like, there are places like that where you get that feeling, like it's Brigadoon golf, you know, it's, you go to Bandon, you go to Streamsong, you go now to Sand Valley, and it's, that, that total immersion in golf is there, but it's real, it's temporary. You know, these are out there places and then, then you leave and it goes away. But Pinehurst is just, it's just so saturated with golf. It's really special. And you've taken to Pinehurst. You live there now and have been there for quite a while. And you seem to be kind of like the man about town there as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I, I fell in love with Pinehurst the very first time that I came here, you know, on the trip that I was describing and, uh, just everything about the ambiance of the place, you know, between the village and just the atmosphere. Um, it just, it just absorbs you. And, uh, seeing the other golf courses here, especially having mid pines and pineers or, uh, pine needles to go and see when we were, uh, when we were working on number two and, uh, you know, to, uh, mine ideas from, and, uh, especially mid pines with the greens having never been really, uh, uh, altered in any sort of way was really, really special for me. You know, um, would go over there and play golf and, and, uh, just study the golf course. And the time I spent in the tough archives, you know, researching for number two, 
led into the other projects. You know, I was already doing photoshops and whatnot shortly after we finished uh, the work on, on Pinehurst number two, just because I had such a depth of, of photography and whatnot that I had, had gone through in the archives and and started to fashion it ideas when I'd just be out playing these other places. So the uh, the long arm of Ross's history and, and the atmosphere that he created with the, the different kinds of golf courses within a common theme really does absorb anybody that is uh, an architectural fan and, and, and wants to learn the craft and, and wants to learn from some of his most personal projects. You know, having lived here, you know, he had the house uh, across town on number two, and then he also had uh, a house just several hundred yards away over on, on Norwood, just up the hill from, from Pine Needles and Mid Pines. So it's, it's a special place, and uh, for anybody that, that loves architecture, architecture, it's a place where they really should make, make a point of spending, not just, just, not just coming in for a couple of days, but really making a good, solid trip of it and really capturing everything. I think that's probably the thing that a lot of people miss when they come here is, is you know, they go and play golf and then they leave, but they don't really capture all of the all the great elements here between going to the Tuft Archives and learning all the history and whatnot. There's there's just so much to to take in uh, in in the Pinehurst experience. Yeah, and that experience and and that story. You're part of that story now with with your work at Pine Needles and before that Mid Pines. Walk us through the story, that story, how did you become involved with them? You just mentioned that you were doing a lot of research while you were working on number two, helping them uh, with the renovation of that course. And you came and you kind of met Mid Pines in a very honest and open way. And, and uh, did you approach them about working on that course? Because it needed some work, didn't it? It just kind of happened very naturally. You know, uh, I was working on number two in the autumn of, I guess that was 2010, I want to say, that we were, we'd started the project and uh, was working for Bill and Ben and, and some friends of mine came into town and they were going to have a, the Outpost Club. They were going to have an event over at Pine Needles and, and they invited, they were going to stay in my apartment uh, that I was staying in during the project and and uh, they had an event over at Pine Needles and they suggested I should come on over and, and I just started chatting with Kelly Miller about about the golf courses, Kelly being the owner and uh, uh, president of the resort, and we just started kind of talking about the go- what we were doing first on Piners Number Two, <clears throat> and then secondly, we just started talking about Mid Pines. You know, I was already cognizant of it and had gone and played. You know, John Jeffries and Kevin Robinson, Bob Farron, the uh, the senior staff and uh, from the maintenance over at uh, Pinehurst and suggested I go see it because the greens had never really been changed all that much. They'd never been switched to USGA greens, so you could still see what we call you know, the finishing of the greens, what we call the final float. You could still see Ross's final float on the golf course. And that's something that really you just can't see on any of the golf courses, bar for sections of course three. So we started just kind of talking about it, and I just you know mentioned that I thought it had amazing potential to do a restoration. And actually during the course of the conversation at that point, I didn't even know that Kelly was the owner. We were sort of chit-chatting about architecture and, and the place, and then uh, we talked a bit about pine needles and well, as well, and then he just sort of kind of introduced himself as, you know, uh, so that's really where he and I's, you know, first of all, friendship started, uh, was just kind of talking about the golf courses, what we were doing, and his ambitions to uh, potentially make some upgrades. They talked about doing, um, switching to Alta Dora from Mutagrass, um, so they could be a little bit more... Uh, uh, maintenance friendly in the summertime, and uh, we just kind of got started from there. You know, I would come across photos of of mid pines after that, and I would just sort of log them. You know, I'd save them, and and uh, and Kelly and I'd have lunch. You know, once every several months or so, and uh, I just started doing photoshops and whatnot of what I thought the the holes could look like. Um, you know, I got a hold of the aerial for the uh, property and. Uh, began just kind of uh, crafting the other plans, you know, and I, I just kind of sent them to Kelly as I was going along, and uh, we started to kind of, you know, just start to throw ideas at the wall as to, as to how we would do a, do a project. He had already kind of been committed to doing the greens uh, in the interim period that I was kind of doing a lot of these photoshops, and once he got kind of a hold of all the photoshops, it's like, this is something we should really do, and we should take seriously and, and take a shot at it. And uh, so I began putting the other, you know, uh, finalized plans, you know, uh, for the entire property and putting together a budget and a schedule. And in the autumn of 2012, away we went with it. Number two was a lot of fun. 
yeah, the the evolution of number two is a lot different. It starts, you know, at around nineteen whatever hundred, early nineteen hundreds, and it it changes and evolves slowly over the years. And Ross works, it works, it works it, and then it's grassed in the nineteen thirties, and the greens evolve. We all know that story. So its its history is is long, and there's a long arc to it. Mid Pines was more traditionally built. It was built for some members in the Pinehurst area, and it had a different purpose. It wasn't intended to be a resort course, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Tell us, tell us about the Ross's original intent of Mid Pines and and what what was built originally in the early 1920s when it opened. Well, you have it absolutely right. Meant to be, you know, Pinehurst had gotten to gotten to the point where it was quite busy over on the main resort uh, between the the original courses. So they wanted to have kind of a cool pi- private club across town where they could uh, you know get away from the bigger crowds and, and just have all all of themselves out in the woods out there. And uh, and it is really a beautiful property down in, in a big valley, and they build a, a big kind of classic Georgian style style inn. But a lot of the early early players on are guys like you know. Uh, Henry William Phones, who were uh, you know obviously the uh, owners and architects of Oakmont, and it was really built to cater to that kind of player. Really, really good players. Um, you know, Ross obviously was a great player in his own right, and they really wanted to make like a true players' club. Very difficult golf course. It was a very tight, tight quarters. The fair was still very big and wide, uh, like you see in number two, and, and really all of Ross's uh, work here. But the the corridors were quite tight, which really meant to uh, to strategize out there to hit it into the sides of the fairways to have good angles of approach. And you're really kind of taking your life in your own hands along the edges of the holes. There was a lot of of dense thickets of wiregrass and wisteria and pine and and dogwood, just really dense dense uh, under under foliage all across the edges of the holes. So it was a really really blood pumping kind of golf course. It had a reputation. Uh, I think Bobby Crookshank had, had remarked that he thought it was right up there with Oakmont and, and uh, Myopia for the toughest golf courses in the country. So definitely meant to be a bit of a departure from the other golf courses. You know, number two is obviously extremely uh, difficult golf course in its own right for, for the for the ways that it that it is difficult and very famous for with the green complexes. But uh, the corridors, the holes were a little bit wider and more forgiving and more of that famous uh, – uh, halo of, of sandy hard pan around the edges of the holes, which is much less prevalent on, on mid pine. So they, they developed it to be the standalone club kind of across town um, and switch, switch to grass kind of around the same time that, that Piner Summer 2 was. They were all done right during that, that 33, 34 to 37, 38 period where they switched to grass greens. And much like number two, both mid pines and pine needles got the, uh, the uh, phenomenal treatment of having Ross there during the construction to develop the ideas, which is why the green complexes on on all these courses are, are so great. You know, his personal touch and, and the conceptualization of, of of what would work well for the whole and uh, and his construction people here at the time were all very consistent. Uh, led by Frank Maples, who was the director of grounds at at Pinehurst, and really acted as the construction foreman on all all the work here. Um, uh, so having those two pieces in place uh, between Ross's genius and and Maple's ability to uh, to just build great stuff in the field, they really came together really really nicely. Um, I, I believe it was Robert Hunter who said uh, that he thought that that Maple's construction work was is as good as anybody in the country uh, during the late twenties and uh, and early early thirties. So mm-hmm. certainly high praise from a professor there. Sure, one of the absolutely. Best, yeah. One of the best build, bunker builders of all time. You mentioned that Mid Pines is one of the few places where you could see Ross's final float on many of the greens or elements of it. What did you do to the greens when you started working on the course, if anything? A lot of it was just expanding the greens back out along the edges. You know, greens have a tendency over over the decades to shrink, um, which is why you see at so many clubs that we work at uh, expanding greens out and restoring the original margins because you lose so many great hole locations from that slow shrinking effect that happens day to day, year to year, decade for decade. So in a lot of cases we restored, you know, some cases five, ten feet of, of, of pinning space along the edges. So we're really the best hole locations at the margins of the greens. Uh, the there was also some areas that while the, the entire guts and the form and the, and the and the detailing of the greens was all completely what Ross had originally attended, there was occasionally a place where where you know just through maintenance over the decades the there'd been a section of the green that had been abandoned you know a great example is the 
front right of the of the seventh green, where there's a really cool front right hole location that many people always point to as one of their favorite on the golf course. Uh, it's just kind of a, a cool little low low hole location in behind a, a, a front right bunker, and you can play shots through the air and kind of spin it back to the hole location. You can play out kind of front left and bounce it in and just let the contouring of and flow of the land bounce off of the uh, that back uh, spinning slope down to the hole. You can kind of curl the ball in with a ground game shot. Or you can just kind of take dead aim and, and figure out which one's going to work for you uh, if, uh, if you miss hit it a little bit. So... Uh, so whole locations like that, there are just there was a few of them. I think four or five of them, of course. That it was among the best whole locations in the golf course. But because of you know day to day maintenance over the decades, you know, just trying to condense down to where they were they were maintaining the the cheapest and easiest version. They had been abandoned at some point, um, which is something that's very common. You know, a lot of the times the hardest whole location on a green is the uh, is the biggest lightning rod for players and. Um, when they're trying to cut costs, that's the first one that's going to go because of the difficulty. Yeah. So, so we restored some some really great hole locations in that category, and then a lot of it also was, you know, some places where we just for for modern greens means we needed to slow down the green a little bit, you know, just by adding, you know, three fourths of an inch of uh, material uh, here or there just to kind of slow down a section. And uh, but by and large, in the uh, in the internals of the green, what you see is what you get. That was probably what won me the job was the uh, fact that. That I had no interest in changing anything. Uh, you know, I kind of look at them as a as a treasure of going back in time to seeing Ross's work. Uh, so we we were worked very sparingly on changing anything internally uh, for for obvious reasons. So. Right? Did you did you win the job? Were they talking to other people at the same uh, time? Or they? I'm not sure. You know, I think they probably did. You know, John Fote had done a nice restoration on on needles in the decade prior and you know it was very close to the family and whatnot so i'm sure they probably talked to there was a lot of architects right here in the neighborhood that would love to do work on these courses and uh so i'm sure they probably had uh in the the years prior but the fact that i that i'd worked on number two for bill and ben and really knew the material as as well as anybody the fact that I'd, i'd really helped and 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 a lot of times had been doing a lot of the, the heaviest lifting of, of, of research in the archives. Uh, I would take every rain day that we worked on, on on number two or when it snowed and go over there, and that was one of the best things about that project was that in some cases due to the restoration, we had five, ten photos of each hole that we could sort of center in on what was the best period of Ross's work and whatnot. So uh, so I, it was just a, it was just a logical it was just a logical match, you know, the fact that uh, that I'd, I'd done all that work over there and really was so far ahead of the learning curve and just on how to do it. It's very complicated a lot of times to build these big sandy native areas in a landscape that really isn't built for it. You know, wash and making the things manageable and maintainable is very difficult to do in a lot of cases, especially on a course like, like Mid-Pines. You know, uh, we just had a four-and-a-half-inch and four-hour thunderstorm just a couple weeks ago, and, and getting the golf course to where it's prepared and looks as, as natural and beautiful as it does while still being maintainable in 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 those situations is 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 a really true it's an art form unto itself uh to make it all look natural but but functioning is 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 quite a quite a uh, challenge and and you never really realize just how much of a challenge it is until you have storms like that and uh um so i really i really enjoy that part of the craft as well you know everything that we do has to look natural and be great and play well, but it also has to um, actually be manageable for the client and and uh, not excessively expensive to maintain or destructive. In some cases, it can be here with these storms. So uh, so I was already well ahead of the learning curve, having talked with Bill Coore a lot about the Dormy Club project and been so heavily immersed in how we dealt with those kinds of things, uh, uh, architecture versus function on the number two project, uh, which I just continued to transfer over and, and, and make better and better for, for the projects at Mid-Pines and Pine Needle. Do you think there, we're still in that period of time where uh, some nameless architect might come into a place like Mid-Pines and try to alter the greens? It seems like with all the, the restoration era that we've been through for the last 20 years or so, that that, that, would, that would be taboo and everybody would know that. And I, I know you don't know the answer, we don't know who we're talking about, but to even suggest that someone might come in and, and alter the greens and 
and alter the heritage of Ross that is so intrinsic in a place like Mid Pines or Pine Needles is kind of surprising. You see the same thing at Southern Pines. Those greens really don't don't fit that well with the rest of the course, you know, that whole landscape right. and it's very similar to to Mid Pines in a way. But then you get to the greens and there there's a lot of movement. It's it there you know, it could be interesting to play, but they they don't fit with the rest of the golf course. It surprises me to think that there, we might still be in this period where some architect might come in and want to mess around like that at mid at a place like Mid Pines. Well, at a place like Mid Pines, next to impossible. You know, Kelly Miller, Pat McGowan, the entire Miller Bill McGowan family. You know, uh, um, Peggy Kirk Bell's entire family, uh, and and all those names that I you know I just mentioned who have are now run the resort. Um, they have such an appreciation for Ross's work here and. The uh, everything that 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 goes in the Pinehurst, you know, uh, resort and golf lifestyle that that they would never be in a scenario where where you know somebody would sell a poor project, but it does happen out there. It does still happen, and uh, um, it's also very very difficult to do. To you know, a lot of what a lot of where golf courses lose some of their original character from a from a green standpoint, when you had a classic architect that built them, it's just simply attempts at agronomic improvements, well-intentioned architects and well-intentioned clients. Um, it does happen, you know, uh, just, just switching from, you know, old push-up greens to USGA greens is a really complicated process to guarantee that you go from A and wind up at Z and guarantee that all the contours are the same. It takes a tremendous amount of commitment. It takes great shapers. It takes a great plan, and it takes great finish all the way down the line. It takes the entire building blocks of the process and, and just great surveying to make sure you get it all right. And I would say in, in most cases over the last 20 years, um, on a scale of 10, I'd only give it about a 3 or 4 that that process happens, and it winds up being as good as the original green complex. It's very tough to do. Um, and we're getting better at it. You know, the, uh, um, there's so many more from a, from a technology standpoint, there's so many more options in terms of surveying and, and GPS and everything that we can do to, to put things back perfectly these days. But, uh, um, but between, you know, sometimes well-intentioned architects or well-intentioned committees, you know, make mistakes. And sometimes it's just really technically difficult to, 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 hit the nail on the head every time with, with, with projects. So, um, so it is, it is, it is something that still is, is part of, part of the business out there, which is why it really is important to, to, to work with somebody that's going to go to the extra steps to make sure that, that it all comes out right. And that's why really, you know, whether it's new builds or, or restoration, you know, the guys that, that have been really good at this the last 15 years, you know, Bill and Ben, Tom Doak, Gil Hans and Jim Wagner, you know, they're the guys that are, you know, same thing as what makes those makes those businesses so great on new projects. The fact, the attention, the great, the great uh, taste in architecture, but the attention to detail and the fact that they have their own shapers and finishers doing the work to guarantee that it is perfect right down to the moment that you see it. Uh, that's really that's a test of greatness and that really is, is the difference. And that's why, you know, having started my career working for all those guys, um, you know, I've tried to learn something from all of them and take all the strengths away from how they conduct business in the field from a planning standpoint, et cetera, all the way down the line. Um, that's why I've tried to learn as much as, as I could and, and take the very best of, of their tactics and, 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 and uh, infuse it in my own work. You know, the, the layman would come to Mid Pines and look at it and see the work you did re- kind of restoring what you call the halo, a little bit of the scruffy edges and bringing back that sand character around the edges yep. of the golf course, widening it out and, uh, and, and compare it to number two. Um, but there, there are differences. Uh, how would you characterize the differences between the number two, the edges of the golf course and the bunkering at number two versus what Ross designed or what you think that he designed at Mid Pines? Yeah, you know, I mean, Ross designed within a common theme on all the golf courses here. Obviously, you're going to get the rugged bunker style and the sandy hard pan at the edges of the holes. And, 
and the great green complexes where you really have to think about where where not to miss on every green to every whole location, and sometimes that changes day to day. The the lifeblood of the style is uh, you see it through and through everywhere. But he really did genuinely try to make each of the golf courses a little bit different stylistically from each other, and that's the part that I've really come to enjoy studying the most and work hardest on the most on each of the projects because there's huge differences just between mid pines and pine needles across the street from each other. Um, in the as we kind of alluded to earlier, you know, the the larger halo, the big wide corridors, the big wide fairways, and that the big halos of Sandy Hardpan is really what defines you know the uh, uh, the feeling of number two. So having working on that every day, I I immediately noticed the differences in the scaling. Looking at the at the original aerial of mid pines and Piner's number two, and then just also playing it a lot of the time when we were working on the. Uh, the project uh, for number two. I didn't have the aerial until later, but I'd, I'd seen it and I'd seen it around the pro shop at Mid Pines and just detected from looking at it that it was a, a stylistically just a little bit different golf course with the with the tightness to it. Um, so what we try to do is 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 you know we had a bunch of great ground photos of Mid Pines that that showed just kind of the scruffier sort of areas that are closer to the edges of the tree lines and whatnot. And um, so I tried to. Their plan that was really gonna gonna draft on this it, on those elements, you know, has slightly less of the Sandy Harpen. We're still having quite a bit of it out there. And uh the bunkering that we try to go for on mid pines is a little bit different from number two. The the pho- photography that we really kind of settled in on with Pinehurst that we liked the most was his early forties periods of war period of work here. Where I can do as good of a job as I should explaining this. The the bunkering had some flash face bunkers to it, you know, mostly sand face bunkers. Um, but they were pretty low profile, and in some cases, by the early 40s, they had run into some pretty big challenges maintaining bunkers like that through the tail end of the Depression um, with uh, those kind of big flashes. You know, the storms that I was alluding to earlier, that's a big portion of building uh, cool architecture in the southeast is is managing those kinds of things. So the sand would just get blown out, or or the faces would kind of get destroyed and whatnot. So they had started to do slightly more grass face bunkering, not completely so like his work in the northeast, or you'd see in the Midwest where it's all grass all the way down to the uh, to the uh, to the uh, bottom of the bunker and more of a flat bottom bunker. Um, but it was sort of a half blend in between. Um, so it made for a really nice style, and it's very attractive and very flashy out there. Um, but it also has a nice sort of mellow, understated element to it. That was kind of what they had edited the bunkers on number two to be by that early 40s period. When they had first built the bunkers with the green complexes in the mid-30s, they were really big flash-face bunkers. There was no, there was no emphasis towards maintenance and ease of maintenance at, at all at that point. Um, and since we have, you know, Sam Pros and, and modern green staffs and whatnot, it felt to me like uh, Mid Pines could be a little bit more aggressive, like his mid thirties work, where they weren't as cognizant of budget and uh, and maintenance. And I was very well aware that his his when they built the green complexes, that was the style. They were much more aggressive and flashy and whatnot. Um, so I had kind of centered in on. I was like, well, if I ever happen to do another project again like this. Uh, here after number two, that is the style that I'd probably go for. So that was the, the style that I really jumped on that I thought would look great with the big vistas of mid pines and the um, the landscape out there. It would just be really a showy style that would look really good, and I felt like we could we could manage and maintain it uh, with with more modern uh, equipment and and staffs and whatnot to to do it. So, and the test kind of is in the tasting, as you saw when we were you know out on the golf courses. Uh, you know the uh, some of the biggest and steepest and deepest bunkers that that I've built anywhere. Well, pretty much all of them are on mid pines. You know the three-stepped, fifteen-foot deep bunker on the fifth hole is the prime example. You know front bunker front right of number four at mid pines. You know big, you know eight, ten-foot steep face where the grass, or sorry, the sand goes all the way to the very top, and it's just just a really very. Uh, uh, flashy and showy style for the neighborhood. We'd already delved into some of that on number two, especially towards the tail end. You know, Bill put in a really big flashy bunker on the interior side of, of the seventh that I that I shaped. 
And, uh, and it was a big kind of flashier bunker that was more like that style. And then the very last bunker that I worked on on number two was, was the bunkering left of the ninth green. Um, and yeah. I had a great photo of, of that bunkering from the 1930s of Ross playing the hole. And it was really one of the coolest shaped bunkers he'd done and one of the biggest and flashiest. And I really right. lobbied very, very hard uh, to, 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 to try and put it back exactly uh, um, as it was shaped. And, and Bill was nice enough to let me roll and give it a shot. So I always looked at what kind of grade? What kind of grade do you give yourself on executing that? It came out pretty close. I, it was, since we were down to the tail end of the project, you know, I really didn't have a lot of other stuff that I had to work on. So I was able to zero in and focus on it for, for several days in a row to get all the details back. It's pretty darn close to the photo. Uh, we had to kind of meld it a bit with the uh, modern styling of the, uh, of the grassing and whatnot coming off the green, but uh, I'd say 90, 99% or so uh, close to exactly what, what's in there. So it was a fun restoration to do. It's always fun to do those where you put them back exactly like an old photo when you know it was one of the best bunkers they did on a golf course. So I've kind of always looked at, at you know that last that bunker or a couple of bunkers that we worked on on number two. is almost the beginning of me starting to... Uh, um, uh, entertain myself with uh, uh, dabbling in the style that would eventually become what we did on, on Mid Pines that I was seeing in a lot of that photography. Pine Needles, which is just across the street from Mid Pines, a com- really a completely different golf experience, different piece of land, different concept, different routing. And, that, and you're continuing to work on that. I guess you're still, you're still kind of like fine-tuning that. Uh, yep. how, how do you know when you're done? It's the feel thing. You just keep going until you feel like you got it right, and uh, and especially just getting out there and playing a lot of golf. You know, I've gone out and played a lot of holes the last several months, um, more than I probably played um, on pine needles in the entire five, six years combined before. And just get it to where you you feel like it's 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 all right, and and everybody likes it and plays well. And listening to hear listening to what people have to say. You know, we just had uh, the U.S. Senior Women's Open qualifier out there the other day, so I was eager to kind of peer through the scores and, and see what everybody uh, not only thought of it, but, but how the golf course uh, challenged everybody and reacted. So a lot of it's just it's, it's kind of a feel thing. So when you talk about playing a golf course, I want everybody to put this image in their head. Kyle plays with a like a 1996 Callaway driver, like the Warbird, and <laughs> like these mid-'90s uh, tailor-made burner bubble irons so he is not giving into technology and you have an interesting reason for for playing those other than just being a, a curmudgeon <laughs> <laughs> no very well put yeah no i mean a lot of uh, a lot of designers shapers architects you know obviously there's the big the big debate with technology um a lot of people complain about it, but I'm walking the walk. I'm, right. I'm sticking to my guns on it. But a lot of it, there's also an advantage to it. You know, the um, I'm able with those clubs from that day and age, I'm able to hit the ball basically exactly as far as a professional player was supposed to hit it uh, when Ross designed these courses. I can play I can play mid pines at 6,400 yards, and I really have almost the exact same clubs in with with my antiquated technology is uh is um is ross intended so it really makes it very easily e- or sorry easy for me in that case that to visualize the shots as ross intended you know i'm coming in with the same clubs i'm looking at the same scaling in the green uh in a lot of cases and i'm able to kind of visualize what he was visualizing much much easier you know if you go out there and play mid pine you know from 6400 yards with modern clubs uh, you know, it's a great, challenging golf course. It's a lot of fun to play. You know, we had a uh, a mini tour event here a couple couple years ago where the the winning scores all through their schedule were 10 and 15 under par. And then there's this one hole in the middle that was mid pines. It was three under par. It's still a very difficult golf course if you set the right hole locations and make the players have to think about where they're coming in from. Um, but in a lot of cases, they're coming in with so many less clubs that you're really not getting the the styling effect that, that Ross intended. And that's something that, that goes for every one of these old classic courses, more than I think most of the general public will ever realize. You know, in the case of, of Piners Number 2, I have an old chart for from the the 51 Ryder Cup and going back through the north and south that they gave to the press. And the clubbing, you know, uh, for every hole is, is off on an enormous amount. For 
for number two to play with the clubs coming in that Ross intended, the golf course have to be 8,000-plus yards long. And that's even the conservative end of the spectrum. If you're, if you're gauging it from more of somebody like you know, Dustin Johnson, it'd be going up another couple hundred yards. I've never done the math to that end of it because I'm afraid almost. Yeah, to, you, you don't know, want to but, uh, put those thoughts in your head. Exactly. So it does make it very difficult to, to visualize the golf course through the, the original styling and whatnot. And that's why, you know, uh, um, somebody that I got to know pretty well uh, the, last, the last year or so is, is Shannon Rulliard from the USGA. She's just a fantastic setup and, uh, um, setup and, and, and course strategy uh, um, person who does all the setup for the women's opens and senior women's opens. And so she's been fun to go around with on, on pine needles. And, and those are the things that I just kind of mentioned to her is, uh, you know, I kind of do a chart for every project on these old courses of, of what the original clubbing was supposed to be and, and whatnot. And so I just kind of tell her that kind of stuff just so uh, it's something that she can think about for, you know, how she'll set up pine needles, you know, next year for the women's open or sorry, senior women's open. And then down the line, you know, it's just, uh, it's interesting to look at the at the properties from the perspective of the original architect, as opposed to the the modern lens of of, of technology. Yeah. So so the women's open is coming back to Pine Needles in 2022, and Correct. next year it's at the Country Club of Charleston, where you're also working. Kyle, is it? Dare I say, are you becoming the open doctor of women's golf? <laughs> I don't I don't know if I'd go that far, but it's it's definitely going to be a very fun. An exciting run the uh, the next couple of years in that category. Between having the senior women's and and getting to watch so many of these these famous lady players that I enjoyed watching, you know, growing up uh, and through all of my formative years in the in the business, it's going to be a lot of fun to to watch that on needles next year and this summertime at Chicago Golf Club. You know, going to pick the two more uh, exciting places to to kick things off as they as they start that that event, but. Uh, and then, and then Country Club of Charleston next year, you know, such a great golf course for that event, I think. You know, uh, it's, it's great for most any event. It's a really great old Rainer course, but uh, especially good for, for the women's open. There's so many cool false fronts and ground game shots out there that, uh, you know, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed designing for, for the ladies' players because they do hit a lot more shots than the, than the guys do these days. It's become such a, an aerial game on the, on the men's side that it is really fun to, to uh, design and think, you know, through through the, uh, uh, the philosophy of a ladies' player that really is a lot closer to how Ross Ross and Rainer were designing for for these players, you know, 80, 80 and seventy years ago, because they're really coming in a lot of the time with the clubs in their hand that that uh, that the original architect meant for for a, a men's professional player. So, right. you spent so many years just just delving into Donald Ross and going to the archives and from number two to mid pines to pine needles. You also uh, work with mini Cotta club in Minneapolis now, and then you're switching over to Rainer. Was that difficult? Did you have to retrain yourself in these different landforms or familiarize yourself, re-familiarize yourself with the template holds and all the things that you typically encounter with Rainer? You know, not really. You know, the, uh, it's in, in many ways, it's, it's all the, uh, it's all the same game. You know, you, uh, if you if you if you study all these great golf courses, a lot of the time it, it comes natural to you. If you if you really know what you're doing and you know what you're looking at, uh, a lot of restoration is 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 you know it's equally kind of archaeology as much as it is design. So, you know, I think I think what I have learned is to is to much as we were alluding to before, clubbing and whatnot is is really you can't just paint by numbers with with restoration you've kind of got to get into that head of the original architect and try and figure out if what they were really trying to accomplish you know as in with with any great art you know there's a lot of the time there's there's not a single uh on these really great old courses there's not a single detail that was by accident you know uh especially with ross or or rainer or charles blair mcdonald or alistair mckenzie you know uh it's like sitting down and watching you know it's like sitting down and watching Citizen Kane, you know, the movie that's generally regarded as the best movie ever. You know, you're going to sit there and you're going to you're going to see little details all throughout the film, and it'll take you 20 times to figure out half of the stuff that they were trying to do and the ideas behind the uh, the, the concepts of the movie. It's the same thing with great architecture and great golf holes. So <clears throat> you just got to delve into the into the historical uh, elements and what they were trying to accomplish with every element of whether it's recovery play on the golf or there's the bare bones strategy and, and the basic stuff that a lot of people catch on to immediately. 
but there's always a secondary level of cool kind of elements to the holes that uh, it takes a little bit more time to uh, to analyze and also just trying to figure out how to make that all work for for modern play. You know, that's that's really what a lot of mid pines was about was you know uh, all those holes had those dense thickets of jungle around every hole, but it's been kind of cleaned up over the decades to make it more of a resort friendly golf course. So my challenge really was standing on the tees a lot of the time and figuring out, okay, well, what do we need to do to this hole to get that blood pumping shot that Ross intended uh, in the in the original design? Same held true for for pine needles, where you know we were trying to do a much more understated style. Um, you know, as as you started to allude to earlier, the bunkering was uh, um, a little uh, less uh, less uh, wild and flash faced and, and more reserved and, and more of the grass faced style that he did later in his career. Um, so I would try and take cues from that and just in terms of how to make the holes look right and but still look intimidating and whatnot from uh, from the player's perspective. Um, and there's less of the sandy hard pan areas around the holes and more just grass, big wide fairways and grass, which is what he tried to accomplish of making it much more of a player-friendly, of course, as opposed to the difficult golf course that we described with uh, um, with mid-pines. And those, those just analyzing the golf courses through the original uh, intent of the architect is, is something that transfers always very well. You know, I spent a lot of time uh, with that at, at Charleston. Just, just the last few weeks we've been working on rebuilt the first tees in the putting green, but attached to that work, we did some bunkering work on the ninth hole and some bunkering work on the 17th hole. And the, uh, the bunkering on the ninth um, had a massive impact on the hole just, just through simple changes, a big big bunker out in the approach of the hole that was it had been, over the decades, had just become a very flattish, small bunker, and it really didn't have a lot of visual or strategic impact on the hole. So we made it much larger and really expanded the mounting and whatnot uh, behind the bunker. Um, to to make it much more robust and much more difficult to kind of skin it past and get onto the green in two in two shots and and one of the cool effects that Rayner was using there is an effect that R- Ross used to, uh, constantly throughout his career. It's something that I think most people that are aficionados of Ross's work recognize immediately is when he would build a bunker some thirty or forty yards short of the green but it's shaped perfectly so that it looks like it's actually right next to the green. The mounding behind sticks up just high enough that it visually ties in with the putting surface behind it. So they look like they're right next to each other, even though there's 30 and 40 yards of ground behind that you can land it over and, and trundle the ball out of the green. Ross did that in all of his work everywhere. Uh, in case, some cases at mid-pines, you know, there's three or four bunkers that are strung out over 70 yards on the 17th hole that actually from the tees look like they're all scrunched together, even though you kind of want to hit your tee shot in between them uh, in a big, expansive fairway. And that's something that Rayner was trying to do as well on on that hole at, uh, at the country club of Charleston. So I just shaped it all back together to make uh, all those elements come together. So now that when you're standing in the fairway for the second shot, when the ladies are playing it next year uh, in the tournament, it'll look like that bunker's like smashed hard against the green when a rally is a lot of ground that you can land it over and bounce it up onto the green. So just cool visual little effects. And that's the stuff that you can't just get that from looking down at an aerial, you know, a 1930s aerial property and just expect to follow a plan and get it exactly right. That's where you really got to get, got to get out there and visualize it and, and shape it yourself and get it to where it all works very well. And you get the, the maximum amount of the, uh, of the effect that the original architect was, was trying to get. Where do you fall on the Ross continuum of on on one extreme saying that he was such a brilliant golf mind and designer that there's something of incredible value and genius in, in everything that he designed and on the other extreme it's he's got a collection of really masterful courses but a lot of them were kind of you know survey jobs and he couldn't visit all of them or spend much time on all of them so there's a broad range of quality throughout his design work. Where do you fall in that spectrum? You know, I, I think that um, I have always said that I, I feel that Donald Ross is probably like the fourth or fifth most important person in American, or, or in American golf history behind Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Bobby Jones, uh, potentially Tiger uh, for such a huge impact on the popularity of the game in, in, in modern times. But Next has got to be 
got to be Donald Ross. You, know, you have a guy that, that did hundreds of golf courses all over the country, and he really made it possible for, for the, the, the common American that was interested in golf to see great architecture. I, for that reason, I've really always felt that, that he really is probably the, the most important architect ever. You know, some people have criticized the fact that he took on so much work that, um, that the, the results aren't always going to be guaranteed because he can't possibly uh, uh, spend time on every single golf course and, and actually have a physical, a physical connection to it. You know, he had so many great staff all around the country working on so many of his courses, but that's, that's part of what I think is, is, is so great about Ross is I don't think he had an, an enormous ego you know he didn't uh he didn't he knew his his projects at their best were going to come out amazing you know Pioneer number two is one of the smartest uh golf courses in the world i think it really is one of the three or four courses that you really have to study if you want to go into architecture because it really is it is the absolute masterwork of a genius uh and just the creativity is is that his best course in your opinion absolutely yeah and i I really think it is his, his strongest course through and through um, but you know he, he was able to have just such a, a nice impact on so many so many other golf courses and, and, and again make it possible for for the masses to see you know good solid architecture all the way through you know so I, I actually I really heavily respect him even more for that you know that uh, um, that he was he was not fixated on the on the image of the company or or about you know building the best golf course in the world every single time he just wanted to do great work that was uh, it was accessible and enjoyable to, to, to ordinary people, and, and he really had an, a huge impact on, on, on moving the dial forward in terms of allowing people to, to see good architecture. So, um, so I, I've, I'm very firmly in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, the camp that, that Ross's influence on, on American architecture is, is really second, second none. Huge huge and great impact on, on golf in America. And, and some of the places that you just started to allude to uh, um, that I work at are, are, are prime examples of, of just, just the, uh, um, the, the wonderful impact he had on golf course. You know, Minicotta Club is a course that is, that is designed by multiple people, really. It was, it was uh, Willie Watson was the first pro there and laid out the first, the first nine holes. And then the, between the membership and some, some, uh, Work by Tom Bendelow. They'd expanded out to 18 holes, and it was already a great golf course. It it, it hosted uh, the uh, the U.S. Open in 1916. Uh, that was won by Chick Evans, you know, one of the great amateur players of all time. And uh, Ross came in and did some really fantastic work on the course afterwards to kind of strengthen it and toughen it up. And they ended up having the the U.S. Amateur. 1927 that was won by Bobby Jones so it's a really unique history that the the club's two you know two great winners of of, of men's majors out there um, were uh, um, were were the two players that uh, the two amateur players that, that both won the women or sorry the uh, the the U.S. Open the U.S. Amateur in the same year and Bobby Jones and and Chick Evans so a really great place with really unique history and, you know, there's still a lot of, of Bendelow's work out there. There's still a lot of, of, of Watson's overall influence on the property. Um, and the members that have been involved in, in, in expanding the golf course out to 18 holes. And Ross put together a really great plan for the property. The club history book actually just sitting a couple feet away here. And it's one of my favorite history books to go through and, and just kind of look at the, uh, at the work that he did on the golf course versus the people that come prior and just his his work on the property alone really took it to the next level and really made it, you know, the great course that, that Bobby Jones played in, in 27. But there's also really a lot of, of great uh, work from the prior architects there. And I think it really makes for a unique property that it's not a pure Ross course. It's not a pure Benlow course. It's not a pure Watson course. It's just sort of it's a hand of, of, of uh, different architects all together there. And that's, that's the greatness of Ross, as we were talking about before, is that uh, – you know, he didn't feel like he needed to come in and and change the entire routing plan or or change the entire uh, concept for the course. He just came in and really did really nice work that 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 made sense for the property and took it to a nice new level. And that's what I think is is really so great about his his work is that the the flexibility and uh, 
and um, and it makes for for great results through and through. It's the greens are not really exactly what you'd expect out of a, a Ross course. They're a little bit more mellow than what you'd expect on uh, like it couldn't be further away from uh, you know a lot of his his his, his wildest green complexes, but. Um, um, it makes for a really great members course and, and just it's its own cut, cool little quirks, you know, just like the ones that we were talking about with mid pines and pine needles. And it really is a great course. It's a very wild and choppy, uh, piece of terrain for, for West Minneapolis. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like the, the, the topography is so aggressive in places. It almost reminds you of like dunesy sort of topography to look down on a, on a topographic map of it. Uh, that's really kind of what it looks like. Um, so it makes for a really unique course and, and is really a, a really great old, old golf course. It's definitely my, my favorite golf course in, in Minneapolis. Um, I mean, between, between there and the other great classes in town, uh, some really good courses, but very lucky to work there just because it's always been my personal favorite of, of the, uh, the Ross and, and there's so many great architects that work there between Rainer and, uh, mm-hmm. everybody's worked in Minneapolis. So, uh, or, or a lot of the great architects. So, a uh, a really neat place to to work and to visit and uh, and and again just you know fun fun archaeology. I know when you were growing up, you studied golf courses and you were pretty much an architectural junkie and had a single minded focus more or less to become uh, a golf course architect to get into the business. Now that you're in the business and you've gotten to the point now where you're kind of your own boss, you do all your own work, you've established yourself as a singular entity. Is it what you envisioned? <laughs> is it how is it? Is it the is it everything you thought it'd be, or is it just? Is there any way to to contemplate what it's like to be in your shoes now versus what it what it was like when you were seventeen years old? That's an interesting question. You know, nobody's ever actually asked me one that that one before. You know, I think that uh, I think there's a lot to the job that I never even realized. <laughs> I would never, at that point, you know, when you're a kid and and you're excited about architecture, and I always wanted to go into architecture, you know, I I grew up in Western Oregon and and was just a a, a golf junkie and an architecture junkie, you know, I played 478 straight days once when I was a kid, and, but I I knew that this is what I wanted to go into, and, you know, watching great courses on television, you know, between 93 and 95, there's so many great, uh, uh, major championship courses. That was really what cemented my my interest in going into it. Between watching Oakmont, St Andrews, Shinnecock, um, but really you don't you don't really have any grasp for the business element of what architecture is like when you're when you're a teenager and you love golf and golf design and, and you're studying it all. You know it's a, it's a lot of hard work. You know the uh, um, to to really make it in this business, you you've got to be. First, obviously, great at doing the work and designing and planning and implementing in the field, um, but also, you know, just the business elements of, of the three-pronged process of being great at implementation, great at planning, and then great at pursuing new projects. It's a lot of work and, and you know, nailing all the budgeting and, uh, and just cultivating the relationships to, to help clubs to be successful. Um, you know, just selling projects. You know, you have a big membership and, and – you know, 500, 1,000 people and a lot of different opinions and whatnot. And so it's really important to be able to cultivate relations and, and help, you know, the committees and the boards at the, at the clubs you work at to, uh, to, get, to get where they want to go and, and help, them, help them with the vision, but also help them at, in terms of how to, to get the, you know, the, the, the projects off the ground. It's, it's a tremendous amount of, uh, of work. You know, there's many, many days that I sit in this office that I'm here until 11 o'clock at night. And those are the things that, uh, that I never really realized or, or thought about when I was when I was coming up and wanting to go into architecture, but it's something that I that I enjoy immensely and, and love to do. You know, I don't ever really look at at uh, the nights where I am in here until eleven o'clock or two in the morning as as a burden. It's just part of the uh, it's part of the the process um, that 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 moves these projects forward to to be successful. And uh, um, so, like anything, if you if you take care of the little things, the big things take care of themselves. I would think one difference probably is when you were, you know, laying in your in your high school bed dreaming, or even when you first, you know, got out of high school and you're starting to pursue this. You you probably envisioned your future building new golf courses all over the country and being able to get all your wicked rad radical ideas into the ground. And you know, and then of course the reality is, you know, 
new work became scarcer and scarcer and and probably in your mindset you might not have thought you'd at least get you know get established by working on older golf courses and renovating and restoring them you know actually of course, I think, I think that everybody that wants to go to this business has spent plenty of time thinking about building great golf courses from scratch. You know, uh, that was what was such, so wonderful about working at Pacific Dunes for, for Tom Doak or, or Barnbagle Dunes was the fact that, especially in the case of Pacific Dunes, you know, three hours from my house, you know, I grew up about an hour and a half from the, uh, from the beach and spent a ton of time on the Oregon coast growing up, and I spent plenty of time, you know, uh, walking in the dunes or, or just, you know, hanging out at the beach, um, looking at the dunes that were kind of astride of it and, and thinking about, oh, it would be so cool to build a hole up there, or, you know, so on and so forth. So that's what made Pacific Dunes such a religious experience for me. You know, one is <laughs> there's a pretty solid argument made that's the best piece of land that anybody had been handed uh, since Cypress Point, and, and Tom Doak was like, at that point, he was just simply the person to do that project. You know, I mean, such a great, such a great uh, uh, education and links architecture. And that's what was so much fun for me is is to go out and and see the stuff that we were building and and to analyze. And uh, it was it was like the right person at the right time. You know, just getting back to you know the uh, what I alluded to before with you know with Citizen Kane and Orson Well, that was the right person, a 25-year-old rookie director. Uh, but he, he just he knew what he was doing, and he knew how to accomplish things, and he had ideas that nobody else had really done, or he'd stolen it from pieces of, of theater and whatnot that he'd work in. And, uh, and that was Tom Doe for that. That's why it, the golf course is just so amazing. So for me to, uh, to watch all that going on was just, was just incredible and, and a great learning experience. But, you know, I mean... You certainly uh, you watch that and 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 you, and you and you dream about doing that someday and and I'm sure someday I will I will break through to doing golf courses from scratch, but also a lot of it for me was was I grew up on a on a really cool little uh, uh, public golf course in my hometown. It was uh, um, really kind of cool choppy sort of topography. Uh, it was right along the Willamette River in I grew up in the Corvallis Albany area where Oregon State is where I ended up going to school and. Uh, but all the areas that are right along the edges of the river and the Willamette Valley have this really bizarre and crazy uh, geologic history. Basically, during the, the last ice age, they would have these huge glaciers that would come south out of Canada, and they would plug up all the rivers in the western Rockies. Uh, and there's this famous uh, event that occurred from it. It was called the Great Glacial Lake Missoula. And to give you a scale for how big these lakes were that were caused by these, these glaciers that would stop all the water, um, the, the Glacial Lake Missoula was basically the amount of water seven times the lake, Great Lakes today. So an incredible amount of water. And occasionally these glaciers would fail. And all that water would come rushing down through eastern Washington and Oregon in a span of just a few days. And it would pick up, obviously, everything in its torrent's path. And uh, that's what creates the, you know, the, uh, the famous Columbia River Gorge east of Portland. You know, the huge river running through a 4,000-foot gorge. Uh, through the through the mountains, well, all that water would back up into the Willamette Valley where I grew up, and and it would it would rise to a level about 400 feet or so. All the soil changes around the entire region right at 400 feet, but in the lowest section where the Willamette Valley ran through, uh, the water would come rushing out, and because of it, you have all these weird, almost like links links and dune style features right in the areas within five to a thousand yards of the of the river. So, to make a long story short, I grew up on this golf course that was on one of these propers that had all these little small little gorges and ridges and uh, all in like the 10 to 15 foot uh, scale. So um, a lot of cool like little linksy features that I grew up playing on. And the fact that the it was just a small little public golf course, they didn't have the money to change the irrigation system in any way, much less a full overhaul. So they had a 1960s irrigation system. So it, you know, it was like, hand couplers were put on in the middle of the night. And uh, um, so it played like a Lynx course, just rip-roaring fast in the summertime. And because it had all these bizarre little geologic features with all these little ridges and ridgeline greens, I was really lucky to grow up on a golf course that was nothing like any of the other stuff that you'd see in other areas of the region. So um, you kind of are what you eat. You know, the, uh, I, I really became interested in Lynx architecture during my teenage years, and just from what I was playing every day. 
and I would, it was just a very basic golf course. The routing was superb, so it really, really allowed me to play some fun ground game shots on, on the course. But it didn't have very many bunkers and whatnot, so I would just sort of kind of take to doing sketches of, of what I would do or what I thought Alistair McKenzie or somebody like that would do uh, with these individual 18 holes with all these great features and whatnot, but it didn't have the, uh, the bunkers and whatnot that had ever been, been added to it. So that was really, you know, restoration and or renovation is something that has always been a passion of mine. I mean, I spent, I spent tons of time as a kid just kind of thinking in those terms about uh, what I would do with a golf course and what would make, what would maximize all those cool little ground game shots around the property. And uh, so for me, you know, restoration and renovation is, is something that always has been a dream. In my case, it, it, it really did tie in nicely for what I really, really became interested in design-wise later on, you know, whether it was, you know, reading, you know, Tom Doak's great books and, uh, and whatnot, or, you know, the fact that right when I was getting interested in architecture is when Sand Hills was built. And like everyone, I was just so enamored with what I saw. I remember, you know, having photos of uh of the famous shot of 17 sandhills on my wall uh so the uh you know you kind of are what you eat you know uh um so that's why it really has been you know a natural progression for me to uh to really be as passionate as i am you know 25 years later uh with the uh with the with the style of architecture that that i am working in but you know so hopefully at some point I'll, I'll, I'll get the shot to do a golf course from scratch I think it'll probably happen eventually. Unfortunately, you know, I, I've spent so much great time working for such great architects, studied so much of the great architecture in the past, but also, you know, you spend, I've been in the industry now for, for 17 years, um, having analyzed all that stuff. I do have my own ideas of what I think that I could add and, and be cool and, and be interesting and, and continue to move the, the craft. Okay, stay tuned for part two of my discussion with Kyle Franz. There's much more to come. 